If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Do you think about how much work it takes for someone who doesn't speak English to get the care they need? Because some things that a lot of people don't realize is how difficult it is for Chinese speaking or any immigrant population to get to you in the first place. They have to navigate through a call center that they don't speak any language of, and then they're directed to log on. They, the apps don't make any sense. And they finally got to see a doctor. And they're always concerned that they will not be able to follow up. And if I continue to have abdominal pain, what do I do? Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. Welcome to season one, where we talk about the history and culture of immigrant communities. You just heard from Rulon Liu, a primary care physician who cares for a large Chinese population and is fluent in medical Chinese. What did you think about when you heard that clip? We all know it's difficult to get the care you need when you don't speak English, when you're in a country where everything is in English. But this is a reminder about what it feels like to the patient to finally get to see you when they're feeling vulnerable, their body or mind is failing, and they don't know if they'll ever see you again. Rulant Liu is going to tell you how you can care for the Chinese community. She has knowledge about traditional Chinese medicine and has studied integrative medicine in her career. She even worked as a medical translator before entering medical school. And she is going to give us a master class in culturally responsive care for the Chinese community. We talk about Chinese cuisine, food as medicine, contending with patients' experience back home when they can get an MRI whenever they want. And yes, I know this, because in India, you can too. You just walk up to the MRI shop and you can order yourself an MRI. And when you're talking to patients that expect that or are used to that, what do you do? As I said, this will be a masterclass. If this is your first time joining us, this is part two of a four-part series on the Chinese community. Listen to part one to understand the history of immigration of the Chinese community. And go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up. And remember, you can listen on any podcasting platform, including Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music. Here's Rulan. Welcome to the show, Rulan. Nice to have you you here. Thanks for having me. So tell me about yourself. How did you end up in Washington? I was born in Chengdu, China, which is capital city of the Sichuan province. You probably heard of it from all the spicy food. And then when I was nine years old, my parents immigrated to the U.S., specifically Portland, Oregon. Both of my parents are acupuncturists, and they came as part of an employment 
based visa program and they established their own practice in Chinese medicine in Portland. So I moved here in the middle of third grade and attended elementary, middle, high school, and then decided to go into pre-med and studying Western medicine to the slight dismay of my very traditional parents. Yeah, awesome. You know, my story is kind of similar to you, except from India, and I moved here when I was in third grade. But I'll say, I grew up in a Hindu household, and I ended up going to a Catholic school. So I thought all of America was Catholicism, because <laughs> doing mass on Fridays. But it's totally that culture shock when you come, when you're that young, you're still open to things, but it's still like, your home feels like a different place, right? Absolutely. My parents were very traditionally Chinese, cultural-wise, and also their profession. So a lot of interesting conversations at home now that I've studied more of a, a more allopathic slash Western medicine, right? So we'll see. Yeah. And I know you, you, know, you mentioned you take care of a large population of Chinese immigrants, too. And there was another way to categorize it to just, at least for our mind, when we're approaching different kinds of patients. There was one group, we could say, like the older Chinese-American immigrants who are the most traditional. Then there's the immigrants of working class who are still embracing cultural values that are traditional, but are open to just acculturation or are more American in many ways. And then there's the professionals who are highly educated people who came here as professionals or working in the large organizations in our state. And then the last group is American-born Chinese-Americans. That was just one way of categorizing it to say, if we want to talk about certain cultural values, it's not going to apply to all groups equally. Like, I'm not going to go to American-born Chinese-Americans and talk about hot and cold food. Right. Yeah, that's a concept in traditional Chinese medicine that's rooted in there. And, you yeah. know, in thinking about this, there's so many different ways to categorize, and I don't want to stereotype because there's a lot of overlap. But the truth is that the Chinese-Americans who came here in the late 1800s settled down and their generations of Chinese Americans from that point on will be much more acculturated into the American culture than people who had come here in the mid-2000s. Usually, there is a difference in geographic location of where they settled within the Seattle area as well. The Chinatown portion, and Portland had a Chinatown. I remember as a nine-year-old being really confused because my dad brought me to Chinatown and it wasn't the culture I was used to at all. For example, the 1800s, people came from a coastal city called Cantong and Hong Kong in China, where they speak Cantonese, sounds nothing like Mandarin. And I couldn't understand a single thing they were saying in Chinatown. And I said, this is not my culture. Versus if you're looking at the east side, Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond, that area in the last 10 or 20 years have been more from the mainland and Taiwan immigrants to the U.S., where they speak more Mandarin. So these two sides of the lake, we always see a different culture already, not just within Chinese immigrant population. So that kind of separation is subtle and not something that I usually say you have to understand deeply to be aware of how to provide good care for these patients. My non-Mandarin speaking colleagues, I just go over this a little bit of the concept, but there is still a lot of values that connect these groups that goes back thousands of years. So we can talk about that a little bit more in the yeah. future too. And I think it's helpful to acknowledge both the diversity of that community. I mean, China's a large, large country with a long history, as well as try to find commonalities so we are better clinicians. 
And when we're asking questions, they're more informed and not offensive as we're not putting people into buckets. Okay, I think we'll start with diet, nutrition, and food. Let's start with just the different kinds of food, but then we'll go deeper into food as medicine because I think that's can be a big part of Chinese culture. Let's say up front that Chinese food is not deep fried shrimp and sweet and sour pork. Okay. Like part of just like an Indian food, it's like chicken tikka masala is not Indian food for me. (laughs) I think it's important to say it loud because I think culture changes here, partly to please quote unquote Western tastes and make a business when the authentic cuisine or what people eat at home is not what you see at these restaurants that you go to. But the cuisine of China is also diverse. There's Shanghai cuisine, Sichuan cuisine, Cantonese cuisine. I think people think of Cantonese mostly when I think about Chinese cuisine. Sichuan is the spicy, the hot chili, right? It's the dishes that people think of, right? Yeah, it's almost as a yin and yang of cuisines when you talk about Cantonese and Sichuan cuisine. One of them, the cooking style is really subtle. The flavors are elicited through hours of making and building a broth. And the other one is really hot peppers, just really stir-frying and bringing out just all the aromatics in one pot. So the cuisine, yes, in Chinese cuisine, there are these two opposing sides as well. But you're right, there's a lot of amplification when it comes to fortune cookies. My American classmates at age nine come up to me and say, do you like fortune? I was like, that's not my culture either. Tastes good. And I don't like those fortunes. No, I I can't read them. They're in English. The kind of foods that my patients tend to eat also, you can imagine now in the last 10 years, there's so much more dedicated Chinese supermarkets. And it's incredible the amount of imported goods available from China. You can find a specific brand of a specific type of chili oil that you are more familiar with in China. It's not completely the same. But still, they do have a lot of these traditional type of vegetables. My husband, who is actually Indian-American, always asks, you can buy a lot of veggies from supermarkets like Safeway or QFC. Why do you go to the Chinese supermarkets? Because they have a different breed of cabbages or different species of cabbages that they don't normally sell here. So the Chinese community tends to use ingredients and things that are not so widely sold in other stores. But their style of cooking also incorporates about how they grow up. It's a, it's really a comfort making them back to what they're used to. Yeah. And would you say that most meals or let's say lunch and dinner consist of rice, soup, and like a few side dishes where vegetables is already a part of the meal and meat isn't like the, the main meal. It's like almost for tasting in different dishes. Chinese cuisine and the kind of timing of food is still very traditionally breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And rice or some form of starch is very important. Some of the younger generations say, I'm on a keto diet or low carb, and that doesn't really work for the majority of my patients. My own parents, who my mom was tested to have slightly higher blood sugar, you know, pre-diabetes, and her doctor said, you stop eating rice. And she said, it's not possible. And so they tried things like brown rice, things that are a little bit healthier comparatively, but the taste is different. So in northern China, there is a more focus on wheat-based products like noodles, dumplings, the wrappers. And then in southern China, where there is less wheat grown naturally because of the climate, you have 
rice noodles, rice, or in Cantonese, you have those like beef noodle soups. But that is some sort of starch is a staple in Chinese cuisine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Absolutely. And your question about whether or not there's a meat component soup. Soup is usually drink at dinner time, not so much at lunch. I would say meat is more incorporated in Chinese cuisine than in others. It's something that generally at every meal. And most of my patients would really try to balance that out with some sort of stir-fried vegetables. Stir-frying is a common way of cooking in Chinese cuisine. We don't bake a lot or roast vegetables or or grill them as much, you know, at least not at home, right? Have this food carts or street street foods. And so talking to my patients about not just the kind of food that they eat, but the oils used to stir fry is usually a high yield topic. They often sometimes use pork, like lard. That's a traditional, you save some of the things that from the pork. Or they use canola oil, neither of which are very good for your cholesterol. So transitioning to more of some things they haven't heard about as much like olive oil or avocado. Neither of those are traditional plants and oils used in China, but really widely available here. Yeah, yeah. And we're a big proponent of, I think when I do this podcast and show, respecting people's culture and their own cuisine. Is there anything else that you do for counseling for diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, you know, the big three that we often see? Right. I I think the concept of eating three meals a day is really important in the Chinese culture because it's the cultural part of this is you, when you have people over or you talk about things, your position in the community is really represented by how you appear. Here, there is less immediate family. When you're looking at immigrant culture, it's more rare for recent immigrants to have their cousins and second cousins and grandparents and everybody here. It's usually just the nuclear family. So they reach out to specific members, just friends. Your community of friends is quite large, is part of the Chinese immigrant population. And with it, when it comes to food, if you're saying, oh, we're not having, we're just doing two meals a day, like the intermittent fasting type of thing that's so popular that just doesn't quite work for a lot of patients and their children. So I try to talk to them about just eating a little bit less in the evening. That maybe have a really good breakfast or lunch, but limiting portion sizes a little bit is more high yield. And it's difficult though to, I find this myself because when you're trying to say count calories and there's an app that says my fitness pal, you can enter in this, you know, cereal and they'll tell you a bowl of it is this much calories. Well, I don't really eat cereal for breakfast, but most of the Americanized apps can't tell you how much calories are in this one type of crackers that are only produced in China. So it's really hard to have the kind of ease of access to do that for my patients who have diabetes or heart disease, but really eating more of a balanced meal, limiting portion sizes, being more mindful about that is where I find the best results. That makes sense. Okay. I think the other part of diet and nutrition is treating food as medicine. If you're feeling ill, changing the type of food you're eating can restore balance and make you feel better. And I think that's a foreign concept for a lot of people because I bring it back to also trying to identify our own culture and our expectations. In America, where there's no seasons for fruits or vegetables, like strawberries, like 12 months a year kind of thing, 
it's hard to imagine that you're trying to balance your needs with the environment's needs and the type of food and how you all react with each other. So I don't know, how would you explain the idea of hot and cold? Because I know certain foods are hot and certain foods are cold. And I think also like sometimes patients may ask you, like you say, oh, you have an infection. And they may ask you, what should I eat? It's probably not the right response to say, oh, you can eat whatever you want. Because I don't think that's probably what they're asking you about. So how would you approach that too? So if I were to explain this to my colleagues at clinics about the concept of how food ties into health for my Chinese patients is really rooted in Chinese medicine. The idea with Chinese medicine is everything that you come into touch with impacts your health. We'll talk about how emotions plays into that, but really what you put into your mouth has different properties. And these properties can infect your qi or energy. And your body inherently is a quote-unquote warm chi type of, like it has a warm energy, you're warm-blooded. And so the eating of foods that are warmer for you are generally, you spend less chi in digesting that. And it's better for the movement of this energy through your body in general. To help along with this chi, there are different herbs that are often incorporated into soups or porridges. And we often eat both of those things when we feel ill or sick or my, our parents feed us those. And the cold, the concept of eating cold things, it's not part of my training going through medical school and residency, but I can understand when my patients say they oftentimes have a common thing is GERD, right? Reflux. And as you know, treatment of reflux is at least 50% diet changes. You can put on the acid reducers and tongues, but if you don't change your diet, you're going to have this recurrent problem. And so it's telling them not to drink coffee or alcohol. Well, most Chinese immigrants don't drink a lot of coffee or alcohol. Tea doesn't have as strong of an irritant effect, but telling them to maybe eat less. Well, spicy food can also trigger that, but talking about it in terms of eating smaller portions and eating more warm foods. Although that does conflict with what I'm trained in, but it really gets the point across that you have to look at the food that you're eating. And speaking in that language to them is more helpful to understand how that relates to disease. Yeah. I mean, our job is the job of healing and we meet people where they're at. I know I totally get it. Like sometimes it feels like it conflicts with our training. But I do feel like if we don't communicate where people are, they often just ignore us or they don't come back to us. We think we've done our job, <laughs> but we never see them again. You know? So it sounds like in your perspective, you do try to talk about the hot and cold food a little bit, but you're not trained in it. So you don't go into the specific like this food's hot, this, but just acknowledging that it exists and then maybe listening to your body and choosing the food that feels right to you. And then, but reorienting towards the disease process itself, like refluxes, this is what's happening. So this may be helpful for you to do. Does that sound right? right? Yes. So the understanding of medicine, although we're talking about food as medicine, is very different because of the influence of 2000 years of Chinese culture and traditional Chinese medicine. So when you are talking about, for example, you know, a certain illness, the general population, the understanding is some obstruction of qi, or maybe they have too much heat in their body and they need to do some other treatments to tone down the heat or tone down the inflammation of some sort. I'm not trained in that and I'm very upfront. Some of my patients get confused because I 
do speak fluent Mandarin. They think that I am or where most medical training in China incorporates a little bit of traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm very upfront that I don't know that in detail, but speaking and understanding that they come from a position where they understand the body slightly differently and just putting in some of those keywords will make them pay attention a little bit more to the ideas that you are quote unquote selling. Well, not selling, but... But you understand. People want to feel like they're being understood. And when you do that, I think they feel that. Do you refer to like a traditional healer or somebody who practices traditional Chinese medicine? If a patient brings that up, say, well, yeah, those are good questions. Let's work together with a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner if you want. Do you say that or do you have people that you refer to or organizations? Just curious. Absolutely. I mean, I have just a list of acupuncturists or traditional Chinese medicine. As I was alluding to earlier, a lot of patients who are immigrants here have a huge community of friends, extended friends of friends, and extended family members in China that thanks to the ease of communication like WeChat, which is a group chatting app that they use, they oftentimes when they come to see you already have had some sort of conversation about what they think this is with friends. And then they will know a friend whose friend is a doctor. And then they would ask that doctor in China what they think this rash is. And so I find it a lot easier to ask the question of what have you heard about within your community about what you think this is so that we bypass a lot of you can speak through an interpreter for 30 minutes about the Western understanding of reflex, but they would just nod and, and be politely agree with you. But that doesn't get you a lot of places. Yeah, that's a good takeaway, right? Like we acknowledge it up front. We know it's happening and that we don't dismiss it, but add to it our understanding of what could be happening. And ultimately, it's a patient's choice to choose whatever that they want to do to help heal their condition, whatever that is. Okay. So part of this segment, we usually talk about substance use too. And one thing with many Chinese Americans is that they have a variant of a gene called the ALDH2, which changes the breakdown of alcohol. So people get facial flushing. It's like the flushing response with nausea, headache, dizziness, rapid heartbeat. Do you feel like that actually affects the prevalence of alcohol abuse? Or do you talk about alcohol differently with your patients or Chinese immigrants? I don't talk about that in a lot of detail. Chinese culture is generally really more very conservative when it comes to any sort of substances. Alcohol in Chinese medicine has always been acknowledged as a detriment to your chi. And I think this response probably validates it, right? right. You're all of a sudden getting <laughs> hot. Heartbeats exactly. Good, huh? My patients generally are very conscientious. They know that drinking alcohol is not a daily habit. But the ideas that you're bringing up of sort of public health concerns, there are different diseases that are more prevalent in the population, hepatitis B being one of them, that a lot of patients are more concerned about. There's a link between Chinese Americans and gastric disease, H. pylori, cancers. Those are areas as clinicians we should be aware of in that specific population that is unique, that's not so prevalently taught in our USPSTF guideline. So the Chinese community who are highly educated came here as part of an employment-based visa, and they have a lot of family members in China who are highly educated. 
So you have this combination of kind of highly educated, but also difficult to getting or understanding the American healthcare system, which is a whole other beast when it comes to getting the care that they're used to. What I say to my patients is the Chinese culture and American culture are different. And the Chinese medical culture and American medical culture is also very different as well. So medicine, how it's practiced in China, in mainland China and parts of Taiwan and Hong Kong these days is very fast paced. The doctor will be seeing 50 to 80 patients a day. And they often will sit behind the desk and the patient would give one or two sentences of their thing. They would say, okay, here's all the blood tests we need to do. Here's the images. Because it does take time. There's never any opportunity for them to actually listen to your lungs. And so the patients are used to this type of interaction. When I took a year off between college and medical school and actually interned in one of these hospitals working as a medical translator, a lot of students. So I saw how reliant Chinese medical systems are in these diagnostic tests. And I tell my patients, like in China, you're walking into my medical center, kind of like a buffet, right? You have all these choices. I would like to get just my CBC, BMP, all these panels done. But you also have the choice of getting CA-125 when you don't even have any ovarian cancer. You can have CE-125 for pancreatic cancer. They just add everything on. So that and the patients coming in to see an American healthcare system is so night and day. People think our healthcare system is influenced by capitalism, but you know, I can only talk about India where everything's unregulated. So you can, you know, if I wanted an MRI, I could just go and get an MRI. Then patients start feeling like, oh, like when I go to the doctor, I'll get a bunch of things done and they'll give me blank uh, antibiotic or medicine. And that's what doctors do. So this has come up in other episodes too. They come to us and we're like, we don't do anything. We listen to their heart and say, you're okay, you'll get better. There's no medicine, nothing. They're like wasted their time coming here. And I haven't found it a good way to approach that because that is what we do. But I think sometimes then it discourages them from coming to the doctor. Like they won't do anything anyway. Yeah. Building on that buffet analogy, what I say to patients in China, they're like ordering off a menu. Like you can order the fries with your pizza, with your lobster. If this is what you do in China, that's fine. But here in the American healthcare system, I'm more like a guide. You walk into my buffet and I say, sure, you can get the fries and you can get the cheeseburger and the pizza in one meal, but that's not going to be really good for you. And that kind of brings them into context that this is what they're there for is for advice and really being listened to, that there's a certain level of trust there that is hard to achieve as from an immigrant population to an American system not just culturally, but also with medicine and even harder with an interpreter present, which I think with an interpreter, you can really use them to your advantage of they sometimes offer that gap in bridging that cultural gap. I often, even though I do speak language, sometimes the interpreter will come in and I hear them try to explain to the patients. Now, they, they, that's the way they do it here. They just check your cholesterol and blood sugar and they don't order an MRI. <laughs> but yeah, so it's really... A different way of showing the patient that you do care. I don't know. I can't say that I found a perfect way each time. It changes with the patient. That's something I struggled with a lot coming from my background because I can understand both ways of practicing what I learned in residency, but also reconciling that with 
my culture and some things I've grown up with. But I think initially what I would do is, you know, find a middle ground. I wouldn't order MRIs. I would say, well, maybe if you're really worried that you might have lung cancer, it will definitely show up if they consider it on an x-ray and just say, let's meet in the middle and establish that form of trust. And over the years, they will listen to you more when they say, we don't really need to check ovarian cancer marker for you today. Yeah. Is it too complicated to go into? I mean, there's a reason why we don't do a lot of things sometimes, unless it's fully indicated, both because of harms of over-testing and over-prescribing. Do you talk about that? I mean, I think there's already a skepticism about Western medicine. I don't want to be disingenuous in saying these medicines are powerful, so we want to be careful when we prescribe it and make sure you absolutely need it. I want to be honest at the same time, meet them in their beliefs and their values. Yeah, it's something that I will continuously explore and always something that challenges me in my daily practice of how to reconcile that. I try my best to. And I can also understand where the doctors in China are struggling because you can spend 10 minutes explaining why you don't need an MRI or 10 seconds, you can write an MRI order. When you're seeing 50 patients a day, what are you going to choose? But the crux of it is showing that you do care and then we're going to follow up and we're going to check and setting up follow-up appointments because some things that a lot of people don't realize is how how difficult it is for Chinese speaking or any immigrant population to get to you in the first place. They have to navigate through a call center that they don't speak any language of, and then they're directed to log on. They, the apps don't make any sense. And they finally got to see a doctor. And they're always concerned that they will not be able to follow up. And if I continue to have abdominal pain, what do I do? So another way is to say, we're going to schedule a phone call with me in two weeks to check and see. And oftentimes they said, oh, okay, that's my lifeline. I know that I'll speak to you again and I will bring up any issues at that time. So that oftentimes works. Although you're right, I haven't unlocked that level where I have a spiel that works for everyone. No, but I like that. It has to be individualized, but rather than focusing on why we're not doing it, we could try to talk about our strengths because we know the context of why there's so much imaging and using this buffet of ordering is that, oh, look, like we have time to listen to you and I can learn a lot from that. And then we'll also have a follow-up. So don't worry if things aren't going as expected. We'll obviously get this imaging too. And I'm aware of just because I speak the language, it is a lot easier for patients to bring up these concerns to me. Sometimes patients will ask for a thing and then translator will say something, doctor will say blah, blah, and then they wouldn't ask again because a lot of Chinese values is tied to, you know, heard about Confucianism and Taoism being the two great concepts that came from thousands of years ago. Taoism talks about humility being a virtue, that you don't rock the boat, you don't speak up, you just accept and you almost are grateful for what comes at you. And that also, you know, in recent years kind of ties into the concept of the model minority. Why are we the model minority? It's not just because a lot of us are highly educated, but as a culture, we are very humble. We don't try to complain about anything. Even the Japanese Americans, the concept of, you know, Taoism passed into all the East Asian countries that during their internment, not a lot of them complained that while they were being stripped of their belongings and put into these concentration camps. So the idea of humility will prevent your patients from really saying, no, I don't, don't agree with that. They wouldn't really challenge the doctors. And just because they 
they have that barrier and they don't feel like that's their place. That's a good transition to culture because let's talk about values. Religion is a big part of it. You mentioned uh, Confucianism and Taoism. Even if people aren't actively practicing it, because of its history within Chinese culture and mainland China, like it's actually been incorporated into just the value system. So people don't say, oh, I am I practice Taoism. It's like just part of how you live your life with the values that you hold on to. So the main, I think the four traditional religions slash philosophies, maybe that's a better way to say it that way than just a religion, is Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, and sometimes ancestor worship. Obviously, many Chinese Americans also practice Christianity too. So we'll, we'll just acknowledge that. But Confucianism emphasizes like social order and fulfillment of responsibilities. I think those are important to know because everybody has a role. And this informs some of like why people protect their families from knowing certain things. And then Taoism on this like conforming humility, emotional calmness. So when people are experiencing hardship, you're supposed to experience it with calm and composure and equanimity. And then the Buddhism, that's probably a hard one to capture. It's obviously complicated. But I think those two religions, as you mentioned, inform the culture of values. Now transition to just digging deeper into the value system. And you just brought up, I think, the idea of deference to authority. I think I would capture it that way. I don't know if this is related, but I think there's a belief about face saving. I don't know how to say this. Can you help me? Like, Mianji? Mianji? Let's talk about that. Because I think that is an important concept for people to know of sometimes why people don't express their questions or concerns. Yeah, it's really sort of capturing the the way to say that mianzi is, it seeps into everything growing up as a Chinese-American girl. The concept of mianzi is face, like you, the Chinese society, thanks to Confucius, who is this philosopher 3,000 years ago, who talks about a way of life, like he has a social moral code and harmony. And this sort of permeates into values and the way of life of our family, where you are in terms of the hierarchical structure. And he took that eventually to apply to a more governmental system, try to sell these ideas to different kingdoms throughout China at the time. But that did really st- stuck around. And so you are seen as part of a community and a part of a hierarchy. And your face is how you present yourself. And that could be determined by your income or your status, your job. And that kind of hierarchy also in more applicable to Chinese American immigrants is about your children's well-being and your parents' well-being too. Confucius talks about a concept of filial piety, which is respect for your elders, but much more than respect. It's obedience to your elders, obedience to authority. And part of the concept of saving face is if you go through a hardship, hard time, it's hard to talk about without losing face, without exposing that vulnerable side. You have to present your family as having it together to some form, even to close friends, that your troubles are behind closed doors, in a sense. And you don't ever break the, the, the filial piety. You must always respect your parents. You must make sure that your children are well taken care of and your struggles are sometimes put aside in the bigger setting of this harmony and this structure. So that idea of saving face I see in my practice come to play so much with mental health. 
it's getting better. Definitely in China, mainland Taiwan and Hong Kong, recognizing mental health issues and speaking about it is not considered something that's shameful. The concept of saving face is tied a lot to shame and guilt. Well, I read a lot of Brene Brown talking about shame and guilt. That's not something I feel like the Chinese community has yet exposed itself to, that it's okay to experience those emotions. But certainly the acknowledgement of anxiety as a disorder, a clinical disorder, a clinical treatment needed for that instead of just I'm weak or there is something organically wrong with me. I think more people tend to focus on, it's not my anxiety, it's really that I have diarrhea 10 times a day or something like that. So if you're trying to upend 3,000 years of Confucianism teaching (laughs) in 10 minutes of clinical practice, that's not going to be very successful. But it's just talking about how I say, how do you feel like your emotions are impacting you in that open-ended way? Because alongside Confucianism, let's talk about Taoism. Taoism is a similar general philosophy in China that actually takes form nowadays in Chinese medicine in general. The yin and yang that comes from Taoism, the balance between the two. So when my parents, when I was growing up, I never took an antibiotic until I got to college. I had you must have a resilient immune system. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think about the times I'd be like, I have a fever for a week and my parents are just giving me herbs. I'm like, well, I probably should have had antibiotics. But anyway, I don't bring that up to them. So they teach me these concepts of balance and harmony. Interestingly, when you talk about Western philosophy, you don't have philosophers prescribing medicine. But in China, that separation didn't happen as much. All Chinese medicine practitioners will know the Tao will know the yin and yang very well. So that's how the philosophy kind of translates even into physical ailments. Just like they do acknowledge in the Taoist tradition that your own emotions can translate into bad qi, that your emotions can impact the flow of qi in your body. That's one way that I feel like you can get through a little bit more on these hard-to-swallow concepts, to have that balance of physical forces, but also the energy and the emotions. Let's review because we've talked about a lot. I'm trying to do this more. So with respect to face saving and filial piety, I think there's a few ways that we probably see it all for all the reasons that you talked about. One is patients not verbalizing doubts about their medical care or challenging diagnosis or treatment plans, right? This deference to authority that you talked about. And then also this filial piety probably links into not informing family members of illnesses to protect them, quote unquote, or like being sure who has a decision-making authority in the family. Like it might not be the person you're talking to, it might be a family member. So when you're taking care of folks, like one is not to misinterpret some of this as non-compliance, that's it, like that big category or people not wanting to engage. And then two, maybe involving family more, being clear about like how are we going to come up with this plan together? I don't know, like how do you incorporate like, family members into care when there's all these hierarchical positions, and maybe what you're saying should actually be set to certain person of the household in order to make the change in the household about whatever you're trying to make. Either care for something as serious as cancer, or maybe even just dietary changes of what you should be eating. Right. Oftentimes, my older Chinese-speaking patients will come with their children. 
And their children oftentimes serve as more of a decision maker, although there is that filial part, like they have their parents' best interests at heart and it's assumed that they should and they be an active participant. So it is finding that balance of talking with the children about the diagnosis. Uh, Sometimes they would say, let's talk outside the room. Let's make sure that my mom is this way or that. And they're very particular about certain things. They always will have family members in China as well. So your presentation of your treatment plan will get discussed with a whole community of people. And I think that's important to highlight because I think people underestimate how much people are connected to their communities in their home country. Because it happens for me in WhatsApp too, right? Like people talking, like family member would be hospitalized and they would be, this is what the doctor's doing, the labs they're ordering. Is this yes. okay? <laughs> yeah, know? they will like, send, my mom will send reports to me. Right, from the, and it's the crowdsourcing that happens now in the technological age. So that, I would say, in general, follow-ups are important. They probably won't come to a big decision right then and there. They will need to ask their entire extended family and their extended families. But they will really make sure that their parents are very well taken care of, that their priority, thanks to the filial piety part of Chinese culture. Yeah, but I think that's an important point is that time to make decisions. Like you're going to say this and say, you could even maybe acknowledge it. I know you'll have to think about it. There's probably a family and community you'll talk about, but let's talk about it this again, maybe a week or two and come up with a next step together or something. And I think you also mentioned anxiety and talking about mental health. There's, I think, one component of the shame associated with it that links to Confucianism and Taoism of not showing the world your internal troubles. But also, I think that traditional Chinese medicine, there's more psychosomatic integration. There's not as much of this binary of the mind and the body. It's so separate. So people may default to just experiencing anxiety or depression as like heaviness or pain in the body, which I don't necessarily think is wrong. I think people do feel that here too, but they just articulate it differently. The concept of what you feel can translate into how your body behaves is much more clear if you tie with Chinese medicine and their concept of how the energy goes through your body. That, in some degree, I feel like my Chinese immigrant population do understand. I try not to immediately be dismissive and just say, this is just your anxiety. And they're needs to be some work on my end to build that trust and to listen and to say, I hear you. Here's what we did. And you don't have any stomach cancer that we can see. And so let's talk about what are your thoughts about other things that could be acting or getting to know them. How has things been at home? Do you think there's the lack of sleep? Sometimes I use the sleep part of it as introduction into People do feel more tired, physically tired from lack of sleep. And it's a bridge between that and knowing most people feel too anxious to fall asleep. And that could really tie in that mental aspect to sleep than to a physical ailment, make that transition a little bit easier to swallow. But one of the things that I try to emphasize is People think that because they have a mental disorder, oftentimes in China, they'll just put them in a mental hospital. But a very word that they might be stigmatized in that way. And normalizing that and especially saying we're not going to need to go to any specific medication treatment, but I'd like us to think about how this 
chronic stress and not taking enough time for yourself can affect your health overall. I do think that th- those two things are connected. Yeah, so interesting. I meditate and do yoga, and we talk about how the breath is the only conscious and sub- unconscious control of our body. It's trying to find that bridge. Same thing with like mental and physical. I think it's like a pro tip from you about sleep. Like, yeah, like I can talk about sleep because it's a physical thing, but it's also clearly related to your thoughts and anxiety. And that can help. That can be like a way to approach that in a way that is productive. Let's say that. People recognize that when they're anxious, they don't sleep well. Nobody would say, I don't sleep well, not because of my anxiety, but because of just my stomach acting up. So there's always people see that when their mind's active, they can't fall asleep. But it is challenging to speak about that with an interpreter present because here we go back to saving face and not having shame because the interpreter is a part of the community too. Yeah. And I also like the idea of maybe you do a little more testing than you normally would to gain that trust, but then you have their buy-in and build that relationship with a long-term goal of maybe reducing testing overall, but getting them to understand their body in the way at least we've understood it so far here in Western medicine and the path forward in a way that's helpful. Do you think people are open to therapy or is that also really hard to engage in? Some people are so definitely with the therapist that speaks their own language. I have had a few cases before and a lot more throughout the pandemic of adolescents with eating disorders and talk about how difficult it is already to address this in our society without the language barrier, without the cultural expectation. And there has been an instance where we had the children who speak English went to see an English-speaking therapist. The mom had a translator with her for part of those sessions. And they felt like it worked okay. And they felt like they got some benefit from there. But most of my Chinese-speaking patients would say, no, I, I don't want to speak to an English-speaking therapist. What good will it do? So I do have lists of Chinese-speaking therapists in the community. Some people find it more palatable to talk about, or I would encourage them to speak to their friends because overcoming that sense of saving face is a huge deal. They often can find support in their community if they open up, but just going through that process of no, everything is good. Yeah, we're one big happy family. Nobody is getting hospitalized for eating disorders. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that you want to talk about with values or beliefs that's important to know before we transition to the next part? Okay. So the next segment that I wanted to do was just to cover traditional Chinese medicine a little bit more. We know your parents are acupuncturists. We talked about food as a medicine a little bit, and we talked about the yin and yang and the qi can be sometimes defined as the vital energy within your body. But there's different components to traditional Chinese medicine. There's food, but there's also herbs that you mentioned earlier. And what I've read is that usually the herbs that are prescribed often consist of four to 12 ingredients. They have a primary effect, and then they have other things that balance the side effects and augment certain things. So it really is an art that is done in a specific way. But how do we acknowledge that patients may be taking this and not telling us? Because I think There's some statistic of most patients don't tell us when they take herbs because they're afraid that we will dismiss them or judge them. And then how do you think about making a treatment plan that doesn't interact with this herbs that you may, as you said, most of us aren't trained in traditional Chinese medicine, so probably don't know all the herbs and how they function. 
I would definitely start out with that lead of what have you read about or heard about from within your community about this illness and how to treat it? And then follow up. Have you started treating this on your own? Because it's not just herbs. Many patients would have antibiotics already they bought from China, which is over the counter, if you I can know. imagine. If right? I'm lucky, they have the bottles in their bag and they show me. But yeah, oftentimes, like, oh, okay. they, yeah, oftentimes, they just tell me they took something. Like, yeah, okay. like, wait, wait, it's in, have four UTIs a year. You took something, but, you know, what is it? Yeah. So they already have been self-treating at home. If it is something more herbal, again, very often I'm not an herbalist or acupuncturist, that I recommend seeing someone here because the concept of diagnosing people in Traditional Chinese medicine contains you feel the person's pulse, look at their tongue. The process of diagnosis is looking at their facial color and things. And I don't generally put a lot of, I don't say faith, but I'm a little wary of diagnosing things over WeChat, of just describing a few words of the symptom. And each of these herbs is so individualized to the person itself. And my parents often adjust these herbal formulas every week or every two weeks, depending on response. So I would encourage them to see an acupuncturist or a traditional practitioner here so that they also are more aware of the types of treatments. I've spoken with some of our oncology colleagues over the few last years I've built up like my colleagues who do speak in Mandarin or Chinese to see their experience because I think in more serious cases of chemotherapy, that would be something that they're much more wary of than, let's say, if I were to prescribe an antibiotic or something like that. And generally, I think our oncologists are more open to it than I thought they would be, that the interactions from data are not as horrible as we thought. And I'm not going to say just stop taking all of those, but be careful because we've got to make sure that you are not causing yourself a lot of harm by drinking, doing anything in excess. Yeah, yeah, I think that's helpful to know. I think there was a good point you made about people are trying to sometimes compromise because they don't have access to a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner or acupuncturist, so they just do the WeChat and get an herb. So like maybe bringing that up, maybe saying it can be helpful if you're actually actively working with the traditional Chinese medicine practitioner because they change herbs every week. So if you're wanting to do that, we should connect you with somebody. But if you're just getting it over WeChat, maybe we can think about how to better approach it or something. I don't know. I don't know if I have the right words for it, but it seems like important to say. One thing that I was reading about, how do we approach people who are taking these traditional Chinese medicine herbs or getting herbs from wherever, it doesn't matter how, is how do we jointly work with them? Because clearly they're taking the herbs because they either had a bad experience with was prescribed through us as Western medicine doctors, so they had side effects and didn't believe it, or f- just believe that herbs are more natural and are going to affect their chi in a different way than Western medicine who have certain energies. I think the whole point is you acknowledge it and then ask them to actually track it. So if you think this is going to make you better, let's make sure it is, and then also make sure you track your side effects. So then we know this is causing it before we start putting in Western medicine and then you don't know which one is causing which. So really just using them to 
follow their symptoms and side effects closely and having close follow-up. Yeah. I think the reason people turn to Chinese medicine is it's familiar in terms of their culture. They feel they're more supported in that way, that it, it's like speaking the same language. When I talk to patients about inflammation, for example, that they have joint inflammation, arthritis, that term is not as familiar as ever to say that you have excessive heat in your joint. Oh, okay, I understand. Yeah. Uh, so, so that is in literally just a change in phrasing, but I'm trying to get that point across. So they take herbs for the familiarity, they understand it, but also it's hard to get in to see us. And then there's also that trust and language barrier. So I don't think there's a lot of people in China who are saying we don't believe in Western medicine at all, or else they wouldn't be sitting in front of you. They, in fact, do believe it that they buy antibiotics on their own to try to treat it from China. So they do know that. It's just making sure that you have the follow-up with them from some focusing on, you know, I know you're treating it in your way, just like people are treating it with food every day. They're changing their food. But I'm going to make sure that in, in my scope that I take care of you. I can't tell you to cut out the ginseng in this formula because I don't know what that is doing. but. Within my scope, this is what I'm going to recommend. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about traditional Chinese medicine, herbs, food as medicine, a few other things that came up. I don't know how important it is or how often you bring this up, but cupping, acupuncture, I think acupuncture is big. And it's often, I think, how I convince other clinicians that alternative treatments are okay because acupuncture is one thing where they've done RCTs with like real needles and shaped needles and acupuncture still makes people better. And Western medicine has no idea why it works, <laughs> like our understanding of the body, you know, like what we know it does for so many conditions over and over. How do you incorporate that into the counseling or when you give treatment plans? So there are traditionally trained acupuncturists in China, but you know that school has expanded to the U.S. where my, da- my father taught at for many years. And they do teach cupping. They teach gua sha, which is a type of, I think chiropractic picked it up. I'm blanking on the name, but type of cupping that you scrape. The skin and elicits a bit of bruising underneath the skin. It looks awful, but it's supposed to release the, the pent up stagnation of the qi. That's the technical term of it. And then the acupuncture too is points a meridian, not following any nerve or any blood vessel, but the meridians where the qi flows. So those are all combined into a visit if the practitioner feels like this is needed, depending on the patient's condition. So. I am very much in favor of them seeking out acupuncture for knee pain or joint pain. Some of them, there's a little bit of hesitancy because there's some of my patients who think the acupuncturist trained here may not know as much as the acupuncturist in China. They don't necessarily want to go to see a, a white person. I've put like, what are you doing? I don't know if you, you can't even pronounce the meridian points, okay? <laughs> So, but then, so that's my, on my list as more traditional trained acupuncturists, but they can certainly augment a lot of, and giving patients that sense of activity and control and not feeling so unplugged from their own health and so isolated. And that's one of the things I think immigrant populations can feel with a smaller nuclear family here, just having crowdsourcing from distant across the Pacific Ocean here, feeling like they have an active role in their health will promote them to do engage more and and that eventually leads to better healthcare outcomes too. Okay. And then this is the question that I usually end the episode with. Was there 
an encounter with a clinician for you personally, where you felt seen, your different identities. We learned a lot about you today, where you're like, yeah, like that is something we should aspire to. When I was about 18, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's doing well now, but she had gone through chemotherapy and she had gone the radiation and before that, a lumpectomy, so surgery. And I remember going with her in some of the appointments and it was very overwhelming concerning the fact that besides my shots, I had never gone to see a pediatrician growing up. My parents were my healthcare providers and suddenly it's all these specialists. But I remember meeting her surgeon who is African-American and we were all really nervous because she was going through the, the first surgery of her life. So the surgeon, contrary to our expectations, was not in a rush at all. She was mostly sitting and just, she held my mom's hand. There was a translator there, but she still was talking to my mom face to face. And it just made us feel really safe at that visit. And I think a lot of this is not that the surgeon did a lot of speaking in Chinese or did a lot of cultural things, but just being present. I also think that the fact that we saw that, which is interesting, she had, knew that we were coming after the surgery and she had learned one phrase to say, which is just ni hao, which is hello, right? She's like, oh yeah, they're Chinese speaking. I'll just reach out. And it may seem to us like, oh, it's just one word that shouldn't matter that much. But even if there's an interpreter present to use that one word to just break the ice, to connect, to reach out, even if you're not pronouncing it in a certain way that it made a difference, my mom felt really, we all felt really happy and we thought, oh, that's so cute. They're trying to learn our culture. Yeah, because I think many immigrants' experience is trying to fit into American culture and change their identity to fit into our systems. So people acknowledging and making an effort to learn their culture or see where they're at and communicate in the way they want is very important to help you feel seen and being present, no matter how rushed you feel. So thanks for sharing that. Thanks for this episode, Rula. Thanks for joining us today. And I'm sure we have a lot to think about and our listeners will learn a lot today. Yeah. Thanks for taking your time as well. I'm sure I'll see you on some meetings or projects in the future. I'm sure. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. And if you like this episode, go to Amazon Music and share it with one other person and sign up at healthcareforhumans.org to join our community. See you soon. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duwamish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duwamish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.